Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this episode, you'll hear Janine Brito. And he sees her lying naked on the bed, rubbing this buzzing wand all over her body, going, I need a man! I need a man! <laughs> that and more. But before that, I just wanted to remind you guys that, you know, Chris Castiglione is one of the folks who made Risk a reality. He was one of the founding staff members, and he created the Risk website. And the amazing thing about that is he taught himself how to code. He went through lots of confusing, complicated, contradictory instruction manuals, and bit by bit, he got it down to a science, but he knew there had to be a more user-friendly way of teaching people HTML. So he's developed a remarkably popular class called One Month HTML that'll teach you how to code in less than a month. Don't forget, coding is the most sought-after job skill. Everyone needs websites, and being able to do this stuff yourself is just invaluable. This class, One Month HTML, is the easiest way to learn how. You'll build an actual website. You'll be welcomed into a community of over 12,000 other students. There's hours of easy-to-follow video tutorials, hands-on exercises and training. And the best part, if you get stuck, there's always a real human being there to help you out. So enroll now at onemonth.com slash risk. Enrollment is typically $99, but if you join now, you'll get a one-time discount of 25% off for joining, and you'll be helping to support risk. Again, it's one month HTML, 30 minutes a day for 30 days, and you'll be able to code HTML and CSS on your own at onemonth.com slash risk. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is John Sonderricker behind me now. John does the uh, guitar part in the Risk theme song that you just heard a moment ago as well. You're getting a shit ton of Sonderricker today. We're calling this week's episode Stung. These are four stories from our New York and Los Angeles shows, uh, those shows that happen every fourth Thursday in New York at the People's Improv Theater and in Los Angeles at the Nerd Melt. And we're calling it Stung because it's four stories in which people um, ended up a little bit wounded, a little bit shocked. In a little bit, we're going to hear from the great Jen Kirkman. It'd be a thrill to finally have Jen on the show, but before that... Another spectacular young up-and-coming comedian from Britain. Super talented guy. Very smart. Rather easy on the eyes, if I do say so myself. He told this one at the Risk Live Show at NerdMeld in Los Angeles. This is Matt Kirschen with a story we call Pierre de Bordeaux. So nice of you to pretend that I'm the headliner when the movie stars had to get somewhere else after the show. So, uh, I, I don't think I'm good in general at reading people. I don't think I'm good at telling when people are acting in their self-interests or whether they're acting um, in other people's interests selflessly. I'm often not good at recognizing that in myself either. And this story took place a good 10 years, more than 10 years ago, in fact, when I just left, I'm going to say high school because I'm translating for Americans. Let's call it high school. <laughs> the school you've got to when you finish 
you finish at 18. I was 18, 19, and I was traveling around France. I was traveling around Europe in general, but this story takes place in France, and I was traveling by myself. I was backpacking. If you've ever done that, if you ever travel by yourself, you find you're not normally by yourself the whole time. You find other people who are doing the same thing as you at various times, and you team up with them, you join forces. And around the time of this story, I found myself traveling with these two sisters. They were from Berkeley. Their names were Linda and Rita. And they were kind of, they were roughly my age, but they were a lot more worldly. They'd experienced life, they'd experienced things. They grew up in Berkeley, they knew things. They were kind of the cool, weird, hippie girls. I stuck with them for various reasons. (laughs) They were cool, they were good people. They were also broke. They had almost no money. Now, I was traveling on a budget. They were traveling on a real budget. So I got to basically play being a bum for a couple of weeks in that shitty way that kids who are 18 and have some money to fall back on can get away with doing. Isn't this fun? Isn't it fun? Swooping on tables that have finished their meal and left, but left some food behind and eating some of that. This is what luck. I don't, I know I... (laughs) We were going to be in Bordeaux for one night on this little bus tour. All I knew about Bordeaux is that's where the nicest, like the best wine comes from. Like Bordeaux, like expensive wine. So we thought, well, we're going to be there for one night. It's pleasant weather. Rather than getting a backpacker's hostel, why don't we just sleep under the stars? Why don't we just not get shelter tonight, we'll, we'll, we'll find a vineyard. <laughs> and sleep under the trees, under the branches, and it'll be beautiful. What I hadn't realized at the time is wine doesn't grow in the middle of a city. <laughs> Bordeaux the city is not where the wine bit happens. That happens a little bit out of town. Bordeaux the city is a shithole. But by this point, we committed we were going to not get anywhere for the night. We were going to stay up. So we found ourselves wandering through this quite crappy town, trying to find somewhere that wasn't terrifying while it got darker and darker. And eventually we rounded a corner, and there was a sort of a a small park, a little green area, little to medium-sized park. We thought, well, this is all right. We can go here. We wandered through the park. We found a bench. Thought we we can sit on the bench. That, that'll do us. <laughs> what more does anyone need in life but a bench uh, and company? We were sat there for about 15 minutes when this guy cycled past. Uh, the other thing you have to know, by the way, about Linda and Rita is they spoke no French. They were a product of the American high school system. And I'm not saying that as a bad thing. I'm just saying if you grew up in California, Spanish is the language you learn in schools generally. That's the language they learned. Whereas I grew up in Britain, so geographically France is the closest country to us, so that's the language we learned. So if you imagine my French is about as good as your Spanish. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm fluent. I'm bilingual is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I, I can speak it perfectly like a... Like, even to this day, it's like 15 years since I left school and I could still, I could still go up to an, a beautiful French woman and I, I could tell her my hobbies. <laughs> you know, I could, I could tell her what time I get to school in the morning, whether I have brothers or sisters. And then when she's fully hooked, I can invite her back to my town hall. My Hotel de Ville. D'amour. <laughs> so this guy cycled past, and let's call him Pierre, because I forget his name. And Pierre tried to sell us drugs. Now, I don't know how I knew the French for that, but le spliff. You know, he made it... <laughs> he made himself pretty clear. He was like, le spliff, Bob Marley. And, you know, he was like... And we were like, no, we don't have any money. Um, rien d'argent, merci, au revoir, bye. And off he cycles. Uh, a very short time after that, another guy comes past. He's on foot. And he has the dog collar uh, that indicates he's a member of the clergy. He was a priest. And he asked what we were doing there. And we said we were going to spend the night here. And he said, you might not want to do that because this park is Bordeaux's main meeting point for young male prostitutes and their clientele. 
again, I don't know how I knew the vocab <laughs> for that. So we're starting to deliberate things. Uh, like a lot of a lot of this story makes more sense in hi like it, hindsight's a beautiful thing. Looking back at it, firstly, maybe I could have made money for a hotel for us. <laughs> I got good cheekbones, and uh, and secondly, what was the priest doing <laughs> walking through the rent boy park? at dusk warning all non-rent boys that they might not want to be there. <laughs> Priest walks off, we're deliberating. While we're deliberating, Pierre returns. And he's like, you guys still here? And we're like, yeah. And he's like, you know, this is the main meeting point for young male prostitutes and their clientele. I'm like, yeah, we've been practicing that vocab. <laughs> and he says, well, why don't you come back to my place? It's just around the corner. I know, like what a beautiful selfless act from a perfect stranger to invite me and two attractive young hippie girls back to his place. And I'm aware at this point in the story, I don't exactly come across as a genius because my reaction and their reaction was, yeah, sure, what a wonderful idea. What a perfect plan. Let's... Let's both, let's all of all three of us follow the Rent Boy Park drug dealer <laughs> back to his place in this strange city that we've never been to. That no one, I think, even knows we we're in. I don't think anyone back home knew where we were. Like they just knew somewhere in France. <laughs> we go back to his place. His place is very much a squat. I, they've, I, like it's a full on, they've taken over an abandoned building. We go up these stairs where there's, there's missing steps that we have to step over. Uh, we get into this room and it's this sort of small attic type room that has a table, some bean bags, a couple of half broken chairs, a semi-continent dog, <laughs> candle lighting because there's no electricity, uh, and one other guy, his, his partner in dealing. Uh, and get Jacques. Let's call him Jacques. <laughs> Jacques and Pierre are generous hosts. They're really generous hosts. They could not be more welcoming. They feed us and they water us. And as a foreigner who's in America on a temporary work visa, they gave us no other things. <laughs> <laughs> the drug dealers merely gave us food and drink <laughs> and nothing else. So we partake in the hospitality for a while. Jacques speaks good English. We're speaking in a mixture of like good English to him, Pierre's broken English, then occasionally my broken French to Pierre. We're getting on fine. It's beautiful. Until at one point, Linda, the younger of the two sisters, decides she needs to go to the bathroom. She asks where it is. Jacques, our English speaker, our translator, says, I'll show you. He goes down the stairs with Linda and they don't return for a while <laughs> like at the 10 minute mark we're starting to get a little bit suspicious by 15 minutes I'm starting to sort of mutter to Rita in quick English that I know Pierre can't follow by the 20 minute mark we're trying to decide what the hell we do by the half hour mark she's like you need to say something we need to say something so I turn to Pierre and in my best broken scorbo French I just say hey Pierre uh Où est les autres? <laughs> La sœur. Où est les? <laughs> and Pierre pulls out a gun. I don't know if you've ever had a gun pointed at you. Uh, I hadn't until that point. Uh, it, it doesn't help your language skills. <laughs> <laughs> if you're already struggling with the language, you... You switch to the VU form. <laughs> it's like formality is useful in that scenario. You're grateful for the semi-continent dog for camouflage purposes. Uh, and Pierre starts saying stuff to us 
in fairly quick French that I can, I'm only making out like he's, he's saying something about if you want to be safe, do what I say, stay right there. I have a gun. He said I have a gun quite a few times, which seemed unnecessary really since <laughs> the only thing I was thinking at the time was you have a gun. It's playing again and again in my head. But that's all I got, like, safety, you, me, here, your safety, I have a gun. If you want to be safe, do what I say. Gun, me, you, here. While this is happening, we suddenly hear footsteps outside. There's someone coming up the stairs, There's people coming up the stairs. And again, I don't know whether this is good or bad news. There's extra complication. The door swings open, and in walks Linda and Jacques. And they see this scene. They see me and Rita and Pierre and the gun. And Jacques says something to Pierre in very rapid French. And Pierre says something back to Jacques in very rapid French. And I turn to Jacques and say, look, what is he saying? What does he want? And Jacques says, he is saying it is safer to stay in here with him because he has a gun. Pierre was worried we were going to go out looking for the other two. And he's like, oh, you don't want to go out there. It's dangerous. There's all sorts out there. There's, <laughs> There's young male sex workers. There's weird priests. You don't want to be, you don't want to be wandering those streets. Stay in here. Stay in the... I'll protect you. I've got a gun. I'll keep you nice and safe with my terrifying weapon. <laughs> Jack then starts punching Pierre because the gun was meant to be a secret. And he's like, you don't show them the gun. And he's punching, which is more scary, by the way. Like, we now know that Pierre didn't want to kill us, but we also know we're in a room with someone who's willing to punch a man with a gun. <laughs> it turns out the reason they'd gone so long is they don't have a bathroom in that building, which we should have realized it doesn't even have electricity, let alone plumbing. And normally they just go in the bushes or like in the alleyway behind the house. But Jacques was too much of a gentleman <laughs> to let Linda do that. So he selflessly walked her a mile and a half up the road to a gas station so she could go to... <laughs> and water back. And we... Um, we then went, oh, that's nice then, and pretended to go to sleep for a few hours until dawn, and then ran away. <laughs> I don't know if this story has any kind of take-home moral or lesson. I don't know if it's meant to, but stories feel like they should. I guess if there is any kind of lesson or moral to that, it's um, always trust drug dealers. <laughs> they have your best interests at heart. Thank you very much for listening to me. Cheers, mate. Keep it going for Matt Kershaw. And now we go from Kershaw to Kirkman. 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 Yeah! One, two, three. Jen Kirkman! Thank you, guys. You're very sweet. Hello, everybody. Hi. Well, this is interesting because I am thought of as selfish because I don't have children, I don't want children, but... I see myself as selfish for other reasons. I don't want to take care of anyone. For example, I could have a kid. If you, if you dropped, if you, okay, let's say I had a sister who had a baby and then my sister died in a car crash. I would take that kid in for possibly selfish reasons so that I would have, a, that would be the greatest uh, movie, sitcom, good stand-up. Um, the insurance policy would be great so I'd have a full-time nanny, you know. Um, I could take that kid and I could learn to do something otherworldly like that. Or if someone left a baby on my door with a note, 
you have to take care of this baby or the world ends. Of course I'll do that. So I'm capable of doing it. But what I don't want to do is take care of another adult. I don't want to attach myself to another person for life and then grow old and die with them. And I tried to do it once when I was married. And um, I found that that did not work for me. And I think that people think I'm selfish about not liking marriage because I want all the attention. I want it to be all about me. That's not it either. I just don't have anything to give someone else. They don't have to give me anything. I'm just not going to give anything back. I'm okay with not getting anything. Other people are not okay with people ignoring them when they've fallen in a bathtub. For example, um, I have recently decided to just be celibate for the summer. Celibate of mind and body. No flirty emails, no wondering what this or that means. The answer, it's just like an alcoholic. I don't drink. I don't drink. This is, I don't get involved with guys. I don't get involved with guys. I wonder what that email means. Can't think about it. I don't get involved with guys. Keep going back to that mantra. Because it makes me too crazy. It makes me too neurotic. Once I get close with something, people sometimes want commitment. That's not the issue. That's a whole other story. But my point is that last summer I had a boyfriend and my friends were saying, you finally found love again. Go for it. And I just felt uncomfortable with it because I feel like people are too happy about seeing other people couple up and go off. Um, like people trying to get rid of me or something or just sick of hanging out with just me. And it just doesn't work for me yet. I need to unravel why I got married and I'm still not sure. I have been divorced for three years. So for me, one of the things I'm selfish about is when I was married, I remember thinking, I need this person just in case all my hopes and dreams don't work out. We can help each other. And I thought maybe he thought the same thing. I'm not saying that I secretly thought that. and he lo- I'm saying that I thought that's what love and marriage was. Like, this is good because now we have each other in the life raft. I think most people get married and picture that they're on the yacht of life and it's exciting and wonderful. And I just pictured like, here we are in the life raft shivering, um, but we need each other because things are so awful out there. Instead of like, I love being with this person and we're playing shuffleboard. I didn't, I didn't even know you could have that. So I got married under those conditions in my mind. And I tried to talk to people, but I don't feel anything. I don't feel anything. And they would say, that's normal. But I think they were being too literal. Like, okay, maybe I didn't feel anything that day, but what about the next day? What about the next day? What about when you're Googling, do I have a hormone problem? You know, what do you do about that? Meaning I was never horny for anyone, not even my husband, not even Robert Downey Jr. If he were to come over and say, you have to, for America, have sex with me. I, I didn't, I couldn't even fathom it. I was completely shut down as a person, but I, anyway, so one time I was out with some girlfriends and we were eating dinner and there was an old woman this was at this restaurant in Hollywood, I forget the name, uh, Dominic's in West Hollywood. We were sitting in front of a fireplace. There was this beautiful woman, about 70, in an w- all-white outfit, feathers and leather and beautiful hat, and she was so pretty, and she was with a man her age, but he had life had been harder to him. And he was in a wheelchair, and he couldn't move, and she was feeding him. And I assume they had been married, and then he went through getting older, and now that was her deal, is she has to feed him and cut up his food every night in her wonderful outfits that deserve to be taken to Paris, but she's at Dominic's, and my girlfriends thought that was so romantic. Look at that, look at them. And I just thought, I started suffocating. I, I don't want to cut up meat for anyone. <laughs> I don't want the bait and switch, which is I'll love you forever, oh, I might become unable to move physically in the last 20 years while you're, you reach some style plateau. Um, and I really mean it, you know? I want someone I can do these things with. I want to do whatever I want with someone else for sure, but that would mean I'd have to have a new person every year or every few years. And I guess I'm embracing that selfishness, which is that it just doesn't work for me to plan into the future like that. It, it makes me feel scared and suffocated. And in a way, that's not a commitment issue that I need to work out in therapy. I don't, it's not going to happen in this lifetime. I'm 40 now. It's, what do I have, 40 years left before I maybe need my meat cut or something? It's not going to fig- get figured out in this lifetime. So I, I remember going back home, and, and um, I, my husband was... Uh, showering one morning and I heard him fall and I heard this huge thud and I was terrified because I did obviously even though our love was becoming less and less romantic of course I loved him with all my heart and he was my friend but I thought oh my god I think he's dead because I didn't hear a sound and I thought I don't want to see a dead body I don't want to see his dead body and I just heard a thump and I 
waited a second, and I said his name, and he goes, oh, all right, and I went, okay. But I thought, oh my God, when I heard him fall, I didn't rush out of bed. When the phone is ringing, I rush out of bed. <laughs> Just to stop it from ringing, by the way, I don't care who's on the other line, but I, I, have, I didn't rush out of bed. And I realized that instinct really scared me and made me feel like a psychopath. And so I went into the bathroom and his head was kind of, he'd hit his head a little bit, but he's like, I'm fine, I'm fine. But he had kind of a welt that was starting to grow and it was red. And he said, I'm going to be fine, I'm going to be fine. I just coughed so hard because he'd had a bronchitis that I made myself dizzy. And I went, oh, okay. And I said, well, if you're cool, um, I'm just going to take a shower and go to work. And he was like, yeah, and I just went to work. And I told everyone at work, oh, so scary. He fell today. And um, they were like, what? did you drive him to the hospital? Was this at like four in the morning? I'm like, no, it was just like an hour ago. And they're like, well, what's he doing? I'm like, he drove himself to the doctor. And people were like, you should have. And I thought, well, he could drive. And they were like, no, you're supposed to be so upset and concerned that you, like, just in case he faints, like, you drive to the doctor. Anything just to get a, an excuse off work. And I went... Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know that's what you were supposed to do. I really didn't know that that was a bad instinct I have to kind of just, we did our own thing. And I realized I'm not good at this. And then when his father got very sick, I saw what his mother had to do, a thing she never thought she would have to do at their young ages of 60. And I thought, I don't think I can do this. I don't think. Now, maybe if I was crazy, crazy, cuckoo in love, I love you, I love you, I love you, I want to fuck you every second. Maybe, maybe if there was someone in my life like that, would I want to think about doing things for and with them or having them take care of me? I also get very guilty when people take care of me. So maybe, but I don't know because I don't, I just don't care to find out. I'm, there will be I love you, I love you, gushy, gushy. For me, I would like that like 10 more times. I want to keep having that over and over and I know George Clooney changed his mind. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll get there. But um, <laughs> my point is that I really just, I don't want to have anything in my life that I, I never got. I was a neurotic kid, afraid of everything. I had a fear of flying until I was, you know, well into my early 30s. I never wanted to do anything. And so now that I'm finally doing it, I just don't want anything in my way. And my friends feel very sad for me. But you don't have anyone to do this stuff with. You travel the world alone. I said, well, if I could find another person that also travels the world alone and we could meet up for a couple days in each place. But I can't imagine going to the airport with someone. <laughs> And sitting with them, then you get off the plane and then also see them in the car on the way to the hotel. Like, is that's not very romantic, is it? I don't think it is. I think it's, I'll see you, you know, if I had to go to Europe for something and then maybe I run into the guy I'm dating there. Oh, it's so romantic on the street. We'll have some wine and then go back to our separate hotels or something. I don't understand the, all the togetherness. It seems odd to me. I need a lot of alone time. So... When my grandmother died recently, I realized I have 70 people in my extended family. She had seven kids, and they all have wives, and they all have three kids, and now all the kids have kids. And she created like a room of this size of people, and they were talking about all the people she created. And I just thought, I will never do anything like that. I am keeping this all to myself, and then I'm just going to go away someday, hopefully not alone. I don't mind dying alone if it's in hospice with morphine and stuff like that. And it, <laughs> If it's just a nurse being really nice to me, I feel like that would be a beautiful thing. I don't need like to make kids to, to be with me. That's, I don't care about that. I don't care if it's a, No, but I'm very good with strangers. Like I meet someone we, and then I never talk to them again. You know, like I have a lot of artificial quick friendships. So that nurse in me, I'm already psyched to bond with her, you know? I just don't want to die alone like choking on a chip in my house or something like that. Like that is awful but that can happen if you're married if your husband goes to work you can choke on a chip go oh honey I don't I'm not gonna drive in with you today and then that's when you choke on a, a potato chip and then he comes home and you've you know you gasp your last breath on the floor um, so there's no guarantees is my point so and sadly that's how I look at love as oh those people decided to make a guarantee when my grandmother died, I saw this room of people that she met and then we made and then we went to the funeral after but it was a, a, or the wake and uh, her body was in the next room and everyone was paying their respects but I have never seen a dead body and I was scared to so I, for me it was kind of all about what I didn't want to do in that moment and my cousins were like go look at Nana she's go look at her she's beautiful 
And I said, well, I don't want to look at Nana. I don't want to see a dead body. It's not a dead body. It's Nana. I'm like, did she come back? Well, no, she's not alive, but it's Nana. She's gorgeous. Go look at her. She's gorgeous. And it's my whole family from Boston, and I'm the only one that moved to L.A., and I just felt like they were like, oh, all right, Hollywood. You don't want to be inconvenienced. Well, guess what we do here in Lowell, Massachusetts? We look at corpses, and we compliment them, okay? Get in there and look at Nana. She's hot. She's wicked hot. Go, go touch Nana's breast. Come on, go fondle her breast. Can make Nana's hot. So I, I, don't disrespect her. Like she's a rapper, you know what I mean? And so I went up to the coffin and I was horrified. My Nana didn't look like my Nana. She looked like a corpse. She looked like a corpse that they tried to, like, like a mean person went, <laughs> and put crayons on her face. And her mouth was sewn shut. That was not gorgeous. That's not what... It, Ladies do when they want to get gorgeous at night. They don't put on a push-up bra and they go, let me sew my lips shut. That's not gorgeous to me. And so I went back to my parents' house that night. I hadn't slept in my parents' house since I was 18 and I was 38. And I was in my single bed. And I remember laying there when I was 18, praying for death, listening to the Smiths, please kill me, God. I don't have the guts to kill myself, but I want to die because that'll show everybody. I don't know what it would show people, that I had a heart murmur or something maybe. Like what, what would it show them exactly? But I was just obsessed with that idea of I was different, I was separate. And so then laying in bed, I'm like, never let me die. It looks horrifying. I don't want to be part of this whole thing. And so laying there, I realized... I am different. I am separate. I don't want to hang on to it. I'm willing to change. But one thing that I know is, unless I'm crazy, crazy, goofy in love, I don't care if you're in a wheelchair. I'm going to fucking put that meat in your mouth, and I'm going to look at your corpse, and I'm going to love it, and I'm going to want to have sex with it one more time. Until I feel that way, I'll know it's not the right thing to make a guarantee with someone or want to get on an airplane with them. And I'm okay if I never feel that way. I don't feel a loss. I feel relief that the only person I have to worry about is myself and my soon-to-be hospice worker friend. Thank you very much. Miami Horror behind me now. And that was Jen Kirkman. You might know her from Chelsea Lately. She's got a book out called I Can Barely Take Care of Myself. And I know exactly how she feels. One way that you can take care of me (laughs) is by purchasing one of the, I, I think there's about 43 episodes from Our first season and halfway through our second season are now available in the album section of iTunes or in the shop at risk-show.com. Listen, it gives me great pain that half of our catalog is no longer available right there in the regular old iTunes feed because they can only fit 100 there. 
So what we've done is we've started remastering the classic original episodes from our first couple of seasons, taking out all the ads, all the plugs for things, all the, you know, this, like, like what you're hearing right now. They're beautifully cleaned up, and it's just the stories and the music and great, great, unmissable episodes. Risk has been great from day one, so if you love the show, you are really missing out if you don't go back and check out season one and two. Available, like I said, in the album section at iTunes, 99 cents a piece there, or at risk-show.com slash shop. There's a deal there where you can get the whole first season for just $20. And if you add the three all-star episodes that are there, that's just $5 more. So check that deal out. That's in our shop. And I am not at all exaggerating or bullshitting you when I say that uh, some great, great classic stories from when we first started this all in 2009, 2010, 2011... I'd hate for you to miss out on that, and it's a great way to help us out. Now, in just a bit, we're going to hear from my good friend Janine Brito telling a story at the Risk Live show here in New York City. But before that, we're going to have Eli Olsberg telling a story at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. This one we call The Dick Toucher. Uh, so when comedy doesn't pay my bills 12 months out of the year, I work a day job, and uh, that day job is at a hospital. Uh, I've been doing it since I was 19 just because it was good money, but it kind of evolved into like a fascination with sick and dead people. <laughs> and also, uh, just because I'm 29 now, and I started doing it, I, I guess it's actually been 10 years now, shit. And uh, I do it here. I won't say the hospital, which it is out loud. Just a hint. It's where celebrities go to die or have babies. Um, and what I do now is I assist people who are uninsured with like getting them on like you know insurance programs and stuff. You know, when you move here to do comedy or anything in in the business, so to speak, of people uh, say that like you should have life experience, and I don't think you get that in LA, no matter how hard you try. And this job kind of allows me to steal everybody else's life experience, which is awesome. And so. The job is fairly fluffy for something that's so morbid. Like, people make a lot of jokes while there are people at the other end who have, like, really bad problems. And that's just how you, that's a coping mechanism. So one day I had a, um, a patient who had come in and was intubated. What that means, you know, they put, like, for airway protection, they put a tube inside of you and they literally put a machine that breathes for you. And the reason this guy was intubated was because he took a lot of drugs and they didn't know what he had in his system. They'd found him in a Korean bathhouse, uh, basically just wandering the showers for three hours. And um, oh, that was a cute rhyme. Uh, so I, uh, I for, keep forgetting this isn't a stand-up show. I'm sorry. Uh, so at that point, he, they had brought him in and they didn't know what he had taken. He didn't speak English. And I'm sure most of you know this, bathhouses are cruising spots, but the Korean bathhouses are still like, some people go to relax and some people don't. What I mean by that is some are old Asian men and some are gay guys who are fucking on the low. So that's kind of the two <laughs> that go there. Uh, so this guy comes in and uh, he's, he's intubated, but he's alert. So he can look, he can see things, he, he knows what's going on, I think for the most part. Well, not really, but you know, he's there, but not there. So... I go in, I see that I actually can't talk to him, but he, he, we make eye contact. He like looks at me and nods his head, and then I walk, I said, I'm gonna go get lunch and I'll come back. And I, I don't know why I told him that. I usually just say, I'll be back. Like, that's it, but uh, the Terminator, I am not. So I just said, I'm getting lunch, and then I left. I go to Chipotle, and that sounds insignificant, but when I get back, uh, he had died. And that really changed everything for me as far as my job goes. I, I mean, I had, my dad died when I was four, but I didn't know him. I literally don't have a single memory of him. I can't remember doing a single thing with him. And that actually makes it easier for me. That's a very detached thing. So I can tell people that and it's not sad. It doesn't invoke a memory for me. 
and I've had other family members who've died, but they've died in like, you know, my grandmother died in Argentina. All these people that I don't, even though they're family, this hit me harder in a weird way because it was someone that made eye contact with me. And then I went to go eat a fucking chain restaurant and come back and this guy's gone. He's dead. And he was a John Doe. So literally for a moment, the thing that hit me was this guy just literally disappeared into the ether. Even if anyone knows who he is right now, he literally is the equivalent of like a magician just came and put like a cloak over him and he's gone. That's why I went back. The bed was empty. And I did not the I just excused myself as a work. I said, look, I need to step outside. I went to my car. I cried for probably about 20 minutes and then went back to work. And as I was walking back in, I had kind of like taken a walk around the hospital. I'd done like a few laps to kind of just let my face dry, basically, because I'd been crying, which is not an uncommon thing for me. But in this case, like in public. So I'm kind of doing laps, letting the air dry my face. And uh, I see that there's a blood drive. And so I was like, oh, I can donate blood to give back. And uh, I was like, okay, yeah, I'll I'll do that. And then I saw it said, get two free movie tickets. I'm like, well, now I'm definitely fucking donating. Uh, (laughs) The theme is selfish. Uh, So I did. I was like, great, this is awesome. You know what? Tonight, I'm taking the night off. I'm going to appreciate my, you know, it's kind of like one of those really weird, cliched moments where you're like, I have to really start enjoying life before the next day you're like right back in the routine. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to go watch a movie. But let me just remind you what I just said. I'm going to enjoy life by sitting in air conditioning and watching projected pictures. Not, I'm not going to go to Runyon. I'm not going to do anything nice. I'm going to just go watch a movie. That was my thing. That's about, that, that is decompressing for me. So I go in. I fill out the forms. I'd never donated blood before, by the way. I'm 29. I've never even, not even in high school. And the reason is because I always see like three people pass out. You know, there's always three people who like can't handle it. You know, they always end up like needing like to just lay out for four hours. And I was like, I don't want to be that guy. I know that I'm going to be that guy, but today I was ready to be that fucking guy for two movie tickets. Absolutely. Um, and they were for AMC. Burbank 16, you could sneak into a second one, so that's two free movies. Um, and you better believe that was immediately a thought, by the way, when I saw those two free movie tickets. I was like, yep, that's uh, two movies as well. Um, so I walk in, I fill out my history, and one thing it says there is, have you had sexual contact with another male ever? Which, if any of you have been in high school and are a male, of course you have. Uh, And if you haven't, you're just lying to everybody. So uh, go home and look in the mirror. But anyway, so... uh, And so I just checked, yes, but it doesn't ask details. Like, it doesn't say that anyone come, you know, things like that. And so I submit the paperwork, and I have this nurse, this little, uh, as they refer to in the pornographic community, a BBW, Thai lady. And um, I... She could have been Filipino. I don't know. So... um, let me back backpedal a little before it gets racist. Uh, so she looks at the notes and she goes, oh, you checked yes here. I was like, yeah. She goes, okay, you can't donate blood. And I just go, wait, why? And she goes, because it says you've had sexual contact with another male. And I just go, yeah, I kissed one guy on a dare. And the second time it was just we jerked each other off and we didn't even finish. Uh, <laughs> TMI. Uh, her face just like, she was just writing and she just looks like... Excuse me? Uh, which was a, that was like a very, that's something I hadn't told anybody up to that point. It was between, it was between me and Brian, and his name's even being changed to protect him right now. Uh, I mean, that story was actually really important too, because at that point, that's the same guy I kissed on a dare because we wanted to watch two girls kiss because we were 16 year old pieces of male garbage. And then later that, like a few weeks later, his dad's Playboy materialized. And I'm like, well, I might be gay because a lot of people call me gay in high school. So we both try to figure that out and we both, be adult about this, we both pulled out each other's peepees and touched them. And the moment he touched mine, I knew, I was like, well, I I didn't really feel anything. Like I didn't get aroused. But when I touched his, he had a very opposite reaction. Um, So the moment I found out I wasn't gay was the moment he found out he was very gay. And uh, that created a rift in our friendship, unfortunately. And it took him six years to come out. Um, Which was, uh, you know, we still don't talk anymore. It bums me out. But... I ultimately, because I want to finish what we started. No, uh, so <laughs> uh, cut to back to this lady, and she said, "Look, I don't, I don't know why you just told me this, but uh, you can't donate blood." And I said, "Well, can I speak to your supervisor? Like we're at Walmart." And she, uh, she said, uh, "We don't hold on one second. And she goes and gets another nurse. And she says, look, there's no real supervisor, so to speak, of. But uh, if you have any issue, you can ask me. 
And so um, I'll cut this part of the story to just say cut to three nurses later. Uh, and what I mean by that is three nurses semicircled around me hearing the same story again. <laughs> And the next nurse, uh, like one, uh, one of them asked me, she goes, you kissed another guy? Let's just say this just went from a medical screening to a judgment session uh, immediately. She then went like, like, like the war, do you guys remember Warheads, the candy? They're, the cartoon spokesperson, like she puckered her face like that guy on the cover. And uh, I'm sure in their head, a literal warhead went off. And... Uh, they're just, they can't process this. And then finally, I just, this doctor, a male doctor happened to be walking by and I asked him to come in the room and I look at him and I say, hey man, I explained to him the same story. And at this point, the other three have checked out. They can't, they just can't believe what they've walked into. And, uh, and neither can I, to be fair. Um, I explained this to the male doctor and I just go, look man, you're a guy. You, this had, you get it, right? And he just goes, that's none of your business and walks out of the room. <laughs> he might as well have just said yes. Uh, do you know how much gossip I just gave those other three nurses by doing that? That was a gift. And so finally they decided, they said, look, we just, we can't let you donate blood. I'm so sorry. And I go, okay, um, well, can I get my movie tickets? <laughs> One of the nurses just goes, <sighs> opens his drawer, pulls out two tickets, and like dramatically throws them, which he forgets his paper has no weight to them. So they just flew in the air. And I looked like one of those contestants and like one of those vent fans with money and like trying to catch two of my movie tickets. And she just goes, next time, just check no. And they all walk out of the room. They walk out of the room spent for the day. Fun postscript to that story is that I use those two tickets and I took my gay best friend to go watch Fast and the Furious 6, and we snuck into Despicable Me 2. It was an awesome man day. <laughs> Thank you guys very much. Have a great night. Thank you for having me, guys. Eli Oldsburg. Now we go from Oldsburg to Brito. And now we go from Oldsburg to Brito. But now we go from Oldsburg to Brito. And now we go from Oldsburg to Brito. Yeah! Please put your hands together for Janine. When I was first born, uh, and my, my dad saw me, he said, he was like, oh yeah, she's, she's been here before. <laughs> he said, she has eyes, like she's seen all this she before. That's, my dad's Cuban, that's why I'm doing a terrible uh, Robert De Niro accent. Um, and that's basically a very nice and poetic way of saying that I was born looking exhausted. Um, <laughs> But I, I think that this, this thing that he saw in me is why he, he always talked to me like a grown-up, um, possibly too much. The first joke I remember hearing was a joke he told me. It was a Little Johnny joke. Um, I don't know if anyone here is familiar with Little Johnny, but the joke was basically like, a Little Johnny gets home from school early, and he can't find his mom. And he's like, Mom, but he hears a noise coming from her bedroom. And he looks through the cracked door and he sees her lying naked on the bed, rubbing this buzzing wand all over her body going, I need a man, I need a man. <laughs> and the next day, same thing, he gets home, he can't find his mom, he hears noises in the room, he looks, this time she's with a man. Third day, Johnny's mom gets home from the grocery store, can't find Johnny. She hears noises in her room. She looks in to find him naked on the bed, rubbing her vibrator all over him, saying, I need a bike, I need a bike. <laughs> it's a great joke. It's a great joke. Um. I had no idea what vibrators were. I was like seven, but I laughed. 
hysterically. And my dad was a really, he was a really funny, really dirty dude, but he was also, he was fiercely intelligent. He, he dropped out of high school to support his family, but I remember his bookshelves were always filled with books on like quantum physics and political theory and philosophy and, and dirty joke books. <laughs> Um, and he used to talk to me about important shit too. He would, he would talk to me about the importance of an education. He'd be like, you get paid more for what you know than what you do. About feminism, he'd be like, be independent. Be your own person, don't ever depend on any man. And he talked to me about loftier things, a lot of times about spirituality. I remember one car ride, I was about 11 years old. We were talking about old age. And he said, you don't have to worry or be scared about getting old. old is the stage you need to prepare for death. <laughs> yeah. Because your body starts to break down and you relax a little bit and you reflect on all the things that you've learned. You know, most people need that. <laughs> but you and me, we don't need that. We were born ready for death. Uh, which sounds like some scary, like, Cuban gangster stuff uh, and a little culty, but I found it, you know, comforting. And I, I think that these, these talks that we had about spirituality were what drew me to religion. I was very religious from a very early age. Uh, my tia Cecilia lived with us and practically raised me and she took me to her church every Sunday. She took me to a Pentecostal church. Um, so every Sunday I would see old Latino women speaking in tongues and convulsing in the aisles with tambourines because they were so overcome with the Holy Spirit. Uh, which I think is why people who are high on Molly love dubstep. That's like the same emotion. And after my parents divorced when I was 10, my mom and I moved up to Alabama to live with my grandparents and I found uh, a Southern Baptist church a couple miles down the road and, and my faith deepened. I went to services three times a week because I didn't really have any friends. I, I, the only company I had were like two 75-year-old grandparents and a bunch of cows. So it was good to have a place to go to, uh, even though the pastor terrified me because uh, he talked about how gays were going to hell and he was missing three fingers because of an axing accident, uh, which sounds like some straight up prison shit. Uh, I wasn't gonna contest him on the gay stuff. And by high school, both of my parents had remarried. I ended up in, in Louisville, Kentucky and, and my mom and stepdad were never spiritual or religious, so I didn't go to church. Um, but I was still a devout Christian. I, I joined my high school's fellowship of Christian athletes, even though I was not an athlete whatsoever. Uh, I think they needed a chubby girl to take notes, so I was allowed. And my religion got me through a lot. When I was 16, I was diagnosed with stage three lymphoma, and, and my faith was there for me. I, and like every night, like I had done every night before, I would read the Bible before bed. So like while my peers were going out to forest parties or drinking Boone's Farm in parking lots, I was at home reading about Moses and, and Abraham, which granted would be happening without the cancer because I was never invited to those parties. <laughs> but it got me through that. It, it, felt, it made me feel like there was something outside of myself, like I didn't have to be afraid no matter what happened to me. It got me through a very dark point in my life. So I beat the cancer, had my senior year of high school, graduated, and my father was ecstatic. Um, I, had, I had just been accepted to a very good university. I was the first person in his family that was gonna go to college, and he was so excited. He even, he suggested driving up to my school from Miami on his Harley so he could flirt with my friends, um, which I found aggravating because I knew they would be so into it. My friends were so into him to like a creepy degree. Even now I show them pictures of my dad and they're like, oh, hey, who's that? It's super creepy <laughs> and uncomfortable. And the first week of school, about four days in my second day of classes, I came home to a voicemail. My dad had collapsed and they found a brain tumor. Two days later, I was on a flight to Miami. And my sister met me at the airport to say he was already in a coma. Uh, they started the surgery early because it was pretty big and they wanted to get it out as quickly as possible. So by the time I got there, he was already asleep in the bed, but my family was trying to make everyone feel better by talking about how he made Everyone laughed till the very last minute. Like as he was getting wheeled into the surgery room, 
he told the nurse, he was like, listen, if I go under, I want you to use every means necessary to revive me. Even if it means somebody going downtown, <laughs> go for it. It's gonna work. I don't care if it's you, the doctor, just a professional. <laughs> um, So for the rest of that week, I spent the night in the hospital waiting room. I didn't want to go home to anybody's house. I, I preferred being there even though I had to sleep contorted in a vinyl chair that straight up, it smelled like antiseptic farts. Um, <laughs> because hospitals have this weird talent of combining the grossest smell with the most disinfected smell and this like weird, disturbing perfume that just sticks on you for weeks on end. And attached to the waiting room was a small chapel. It was basically, it was a walk-in closet with a cross on the wall, a small bench, a statue of the Virgin Mary next to a guest book and a Bible. And I preferred being there to being by my dad's bedside because there were too many people in the room. I, I didn't want to say all the things I needed to say in front of them. And it's strange, it's, it's, it's strangely easier when you are sick because you feel like you have some sort of control in the situation. You feel like every time you wake up, every time you work out, every time you eat, you're doing something. But when someone else is sick, it's this strange helplessness. But in the chapel, I knew what to do. I didn't feel any fear. I felt like I was doing something and I wasn't afraid because I remembered Mark chapter 11, verse 23. For verily I say unto you that whoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall no doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have it. It's a verse about the power of faith giving you the ability to move mountains and I trusted it completely. I didn't need to move a mountain. I just needed my dad to wake up. And so when the doctor said there was nothing they could do that he was brain dead, they had to pull the plug, I collapsed onto this wall in the hallway that for some reason was covered in carpet. Just this ugly blue-gray carpet that you would think would be soft to catch people that had collapsed there many times before, but it was like the grossest, scratchiest, like DMV level carpet I'd ever seen in my life. But I appreciated it in that moment because I could dig my nails into it and feel some pain besides this hurt. And it gave me something to scratch up besides my face because my skin felt like dead muscle hanging off of my skull. And I haven't believed in Christianity since. That betrayal of my absolute faith was too much to return to it. And I know at this point in the story, this is traditionally where we all have the uplifting moment where I share with you the central wisdom that I've learned from this pain, but I don't, I, I don't have anything figured out. I'm, I'm still a big old idiot. Um, I still fill my face with ice cream and wine whenever it gets to be too much. I haven't looked at the ocean and had that aha moment. Um, if anything, it's turning me into someone I hate. I've turned to like the biggest stereotypical hippie lady. I've gotten into Buddhism and Tibetan medicine. I wear crystals that heal me. Um, like I'm literally, I'm turning into a dreadlock in a Navajo poncho. It's real bad. I swish my mouth around with coconut oil because three websites said that came from India and I was like, India must be legit. Uh, like I'm gonna move to New Mexico and sell dream catchers made out of cat hair at this rate. Um, but it does help, it, it does. The, the crystals make me feel like there's some placebo magic going on and and the meditation centers me and then the Buddhism doesn't pull any punches in saying that life is hard and painful.
painful, but it's beautiful too, and it's all temporary, so the shit fest is gonna pass, and you have to appreciate the good moments, because that won't last forever either. And that's the one kernel of wisdom I can trust, because I know it to be true. And I don't know, I don't know if I'm ever gonna figure it out. I don't know if I'm ever gonna learn anything from this. I don't know if I'm ever gonna feel like I have it all figured out, like I'm settled. But it makes me feel better that even if I don't, and I pass away, that maybe there's gonna be another little tired-eyed baby born, and I'll get another chance to figure it all out. Thank you. all for this week folks this is sarah Bareilles behind me now and we just heard from janine brito listen folks we have a lot of live shows coming up we are in chapel hill north carolina on june 13th 2014 at the dsi comedy theater come on out if you're anywhere near chapel hill on the 19th of June, we are at the Nerd Melt Theater in Los Angeles. Cameron Esposito will be there. On the 26th of June, we are at the People's Improv Theater in New York City. Still have to confirm whether or not Kamau Bell will be there, but it's going to be an amazing show nevertheless. On the 4th of July, we are in London, England at the Hackney Picture House. Come out to see us, London. And then on the 22nd of July, we're in Chicago, Illinois at stage 773, the thrust space. So come on out. And remember, you can always find out where we're appearing live next at risk-show.com slash tour. Don't forget, we also teach storytelling in a corporate environment, one-on-one, for people who want to do storytelling for the stage or for people who just want a creative outlet or to do a little, uh, you know, personal growth work at thestorystudio.org. Look us up because you could hardly think of a more useful and rewarding skill to work on. Also remember that Risk is a proud and happy member of the Maximum Fun Network of Podcasts and all of us at Maximum Fun 
are listener-supported. We very much need the help of the people who love our shows. So go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and become a member or make a one-time contribution. And be sure to earmark your contribution for risk. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. episode i said this was the end of the episode this is the end of the episode i said this was the end of the episode yeah